You are listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And what it really means is that I'm not going to be talking about basic meditation. I expect you already to know that. Um, that being said, if you find I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to answer any questions. We do have a, an intro or basics class tomorrow night, uh, same location same time, if that makes more sense. Um, we're talking about a Vedna tonight. Um, Vedna is the Pali word for feelings or feeling tone, not emotions, but the quality of the sensing experience. So we have the capacity to sense uh, and uh, an object that can be sensed, and when they meet, we have contact of the sensing experience. And then, in the, the quality or the experience of sensing, we find that the experience itself is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, and then, um, in Buddhist thought, we also talk about um, feeling tones in terms of worldly and unworldly. Um, so, um, when feeling a pleasant feeling, a bhikkhu understands, I feel a pleasant feeling. Um, one will understand pleasant feeling as it is. I have fully explained how this understanding arises in the sections on how to note seeing, touching, thinking. The commentary dispels skeptical doubt on this point. A person who, by focusing on an object that causes uh, pleasure to arise, observes feeling only as feeling is one who knows that he is observing a pleasant feeling. A person who, by focusing on an object that causes pleasure to arise, observes feeling only as feeling is one who knows that he is observing a pleasant feeling. So. Um, Really, the description of this, this whole process. We have the capacity to sense the object and the be, that can be sensed when they meet. Contact of the sensing experience arises. And in the sensing experience, we know whether the quality is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then the, perce- the process of perception unfolds. Um, and this is where the mind checks the database of previously experienced things to see if it can match the pattern of the experience of the present moment. And when that happens, the experience of the present moment is identified and all of the meaning of that pattern of experience attaches to it. So if we've experienced the sensing uh, of that particular pattern of experience before, in the process of identifying the pattern, all of the meaning that we've had associated with that happens, And then there's an examination of the history of how we responded to each of those experiences and the 
volition or the action that we'll take in response to the conditions of the present moment unfolds. Is that making sense? The uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral aspect of that is um, important because it can color the perception of what's happening. If the, the experience of sensing it is unpleasant, and we're not uh, present and mindful for that, it can create a cascade that the experience itself is unpleasant, even though that may not always be the case. Um, you, use, uh, you were talking earlier about the experience of climbing, often the sensations of, of exert, exerting muscles or the body can be an unpleasant experience in the sensing of it, but it doesn't mean that the activity itself should re, re, be regarded as unpleasant and avoided. Hi. The happiness that associated with external things that one loves or is fond of, one's spouse, children, clothing, property, estate, animals, gold, silver, and so on, or with internal things that one loves, one's eyesight, comfort, talent, skills, and so on, is called worldly pleasure. The Pali term literally means happiness that feeds on sensual pleasure. That is, happiness associated with sensual objects. It is also called home happiness. That is, happiness that dwells in the home of sensual satisfaction. When one enjoys the beauty or sweet voice of one's spouse, for example, that visual object or sound arouses happiness. Or when one feels happy, when, one, uh, when thinking about a good time one has had in the past, one should note all of these kinds of happiness as happy, happy, according to the instruction. When feeling a pleasant feeling associated with a sensual object, one understands, I feel a pleasant feeling associated with a sensual object. So, in the simple way of talking about uh, Vedna or feeling tone, we are, we are moving in this description from the purely sensing activity into the, the process of perception, the meaning being attached. And so we can think in terms of worldly pleasure as things that we enjoy. Um, unworldly pleasure, a meditator whose awareness is constant and uninterrupted and whose insight knowledge is mature experiences the arising and passing away of the six sense objects, arising at the six sense doors, and so understands their impermanent nature. Equating or relating this present object to other present objects or objects of the past, he or she then comes to understand that they are impermanent, unsatisfactory, changing all the time. This realization arouses a type of happiness called unworldly pleasure happiness not associated with sensual objects. It is also called happiness associated with renunciation. When, by knowing the impermanent change, fading away, or cessation of forms, one sees as it actually is with proper wisdom that forms both formally and now are all impermanent suffering and subject to change, joy arises. Such joy as this is called joy based on renunciation. So we're beginning to make this discernment between the uh, insight into the, the, uh, the nature of, of uh, liberation in a way. 
that we begin to see in each sensing moment that these these qualities uh, of the true nature of things are present. That each um, um, sensing experience arises and passes, that everything is impermanent, that there is no self that is experiencing these things, that even the sense of self arises and passes, and that everything is unsatisfactory in the way that Buddhist thought is around the unsatisfactory nature of things, which is that we live in human bodies, which will grow old, get sick, and die. Um, the second level of unsatisfactoriness is that you get what you want, but you lose it. Uh, nothing is exempt from that. You don't get what you want, or you have to put up with things that you don't want. That's second. And the third level is that the subtle, ongoing irritation that nothing is exactly the way that you would have it if you were actually in charge of anything, which is kind of double-edged sword. Nothing is the way that you want it, and you're not in charge of anything. <laughs> so, is that making sense? I have a question. So, what you're describing, even even in one Buddhism talks about, uh, what are these called, the three things? Um, uh, the three characteristics. Um, that exists within, not ultimate reality, but within, like, the self, right? Well... It's like, characterizing both when the self's present, Ultimate reality is the sensing experience, right. and uh, conceptual reality is the thing that we make the sensing experience into. This is like arguably before perception meets the sensing experience, effectively? This is, um, I sometimes describe this simplistically as the, and it is often divided in, in, in the, the canon as um, the sensing and the feeling tone aspect preceding uh, conceptual reality. Say that again, George. That the capacity to sense mm -hmm. and the quality of the sensing experience is ultimate reality, and that precedes the conceptual reality that we make out of the sensing experience. But it was also just described in this, this process of perception where the understanding of what it is is associated with it. And so that it isn't as uh, distinct or clear. Um, and also that understand that mind attaches. Um, and uh, the, the knowingness of what it is, or the, the, the understanding of what perceptual reality is, is after the, the feeling tone quality of it. But isn't, I feel like but it's gonna, perception and mind and all those things that come after are gonna impact how we view Vedna, or how we view the sensing experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Um, the quality of sensing experience is very slow to change, whereas the craving, aversion, unconsciousness element that attaches, or any of the hindrances that attach after it's been formed into perceptual reality, is different from Vedna. 
so what you'll notice is there's the sensing experience, then there's the Vedana, and then there's either the equanimity or the attachment of hindrances in each of the moments of uh, manifesting consciousness. And which is different than awareness knowing that happening. Um, the reason that I like to describe this long chain is so that you can begin to pay attention to the, the thing unfolding. In each moment, this whole chain of operation happens and the sensing experience is turned into perceptual reality. Um, really what we want to do is touch into per, per, uh, conceptual reality and then touch back into uh, ultimate reality or the sensing experience because we begin to develop the capacity to determine whether the way that we form the sense of self and world is an accurate reflection of what we're sensing and not a totally distorted perception. The mind state fills in um, like a filter that the, the sensing uh, experience is filtered through and then we create uh, conceptual reality. In, uh, if, you, if we can use as a, a, an example of developing spiritual maturity, the first uh, quality that we want to recognize is that we have a mind state and everyone else has a mind state and they're not the same. That's the first basic understanding. That you perceive uh, and create conceptual reality based on your conditioning and everybody else does the same thing. So that even though you're experiencing the same event because your conditioning is different than theirs, you are going to create a conceptual model of what's happening that's different from everyone else. You would have learned this in early childhood if you had attentive caregivers. But if you didn't have attentive caregivers, you might not have developed this understanding. And so you may... Uh, people with an untrained mind often think that the way that they're experiencing things is the way that it is and that everybody else is experiencing it in the same way. This is a this is delusion, right? The first basic understanding is that I have my own mind state and my own my own mind states and my own conditioning and I have my own way of sensing and I experience the present moment and then I form it into a conceptual representation of what I'm sensing. And that that's unique to me because my conditioning is unique. And everybody else is doing the same thing, so that everybody else has their own uh, unique experience of what the present moment is. The second uh, uh, examination of spiritual maturity would be this process of constantly examining what you've made and then touching into the sensing <coughs> the sensing experience to make sure that the thing that you've made is an accurate representation of the sensing experience and not grossly distorted by the mind state that might be present. So you get used to this. This is the sensing experience. This is the quality of the sensing experience. This is the mind state, and this is the, the, the uh, conceptual reality that I've created out of the sensing experience. And uh, it, is the mind totally equanimous? 
so that it's an accurate reflection, or is the mind, um, the mind state distorted by anger or desire or something that would create an impression out of the sensing experience which includes that distortion? Is that making sense? Mm-hmm. And then we add this, this second part. We can, um, this worldly or unworldly, in understanding that everything is impermanent, we notice the arising and passing of everything. So this is unworldly pleasure, right? Um, we know that uh, there's no self, so that we notice the arising and passing of self, and we don't cling to the permanence of self. We know that the, the world, is, uh, in, in terms of the human experience, is unsatisfactory in the ways that it's unsatisfactory, which is we're in bodies that will age, that will become painful, that will get sick, that will die. Um, and so in each moment we, we're aware of those characteristics. This is the unworldly pleasure, and in seeing them we take pleasure in understanding this. The main reason why I think this is so important is because it puts us at a crossroads where in one direction is nihilism. We understand that nothing lasts and so we can take on this belief that therefore nothing matters and it's not worth doing anything really. Then in the other direction is this idea of fully engaging each moment because we know the moment will end. Um, I'm going to paraphrase Kafka, but he said it very well, that actually the only suffering we can avoid is the suffering of not engaging in the present moment. If we don't engage, the moment ends either way. We lose the moment either way. The thing that we might have wanted um, to avoid the pain of not losing the present moment is impossible because it ends and we've lost it. The only possibility that we have uh, of losing is not engaging. If you fully engage the present moment or you don't fully engage the present moment, either way it ends. But if you fully engage it, then you get as much as you can out of it. This is the, the activity that makes life meaningful, the full engagement, at the same time knowing that it will be lost. So you don't go in with the uh, delusion that somehow you're going to make it last or that it will last. You know, I mean, if you turn on the radio, every other love song is, I'll, I'll love you forever, I will never leave you, all of that stuff, all of these fabulous formulas for just terrible suffering, right? <laughs> I love you and I know that I'm going to lose each moment that I love you. And so in each moment there's this taste of sadness which would make the experience complete, but you don't withhold from going in because you know ultimately that you'll lose it. You go in with vigor so that you can get everything that there is to get knowing that you're going to lose it. Is that making sense? Worldly displeasure. We do not... (coughs) You can do it, George. (laughs) I can. We uh, do not get the desirable objects we want. When we do not get the desirable objects we want, we feel disappointed and frustrated and think we are unfortunate. Sometimes we may suffer distress when we think of our lack of sensual pleasures in the present or in the past. Such distress, sadness, 
Frustration, worry, and so on is called worldly displeasure. When feeling a worldly painful feeling, he understands, I feel a worldly painful feeling. <coughs> worldly, unworldly displeasure. When a meditator has reached the insight knowledge is beginning with knowledge of arising and passing away, and has spent uh, quite a long time meditating, he or she may long to become a noble person, endowed with path uh, knowledge and fruition knowledge. But the meditator may feel disheartened, not having not achieved what he or she has wanted to achieve and thinking he or she will be unable to attain path knowledge and fruition knowledge in this life. This distress is called unworldly displeasure. When feeling an unworldly painful feeling, he understands I feel an unworldly painful feeling. Has anyone here ever been disappointed about the progress of their meditation practice? <laughs> Anybody here ever had the desire to be enlightened? So this is unworld, unworldly displeasure. Um, worldly neither displeasure nor pleasure, ordinary spiritually blind people often feel neither happy nor unhappy when they encounter a sensual object that is neither pleasant or unpleasant. However, they are not aware of this, cannot give up the object and relate to it with attachment. This kind of feeling is called worldly, neither displeasure or pleasure. When feeling a worldly, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel a worldly, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Um, if you remember in our earlier discussions that Mahasi said that most people that are uh, uh, that are have not trained the mind experience everything either as pleasant or unpleasant and they have very little experience of neutral because it isn't interesting enough to engage in it as you as your practice matures of course more and more of the uh, the experience of sensing becomes neutral um, if you think about the experience of seeing, light enters the eye and you have the sensing of the light experience, most of the time I would say that that's a neutral experience uh, because you're able to separate the sensing experience from the thing that's perceived in sensing. So that this, this um, uh, ability to tease out these uh, aspects of the sensing experience become clearer and clearer and as, as you have more clarity more and more of that experience moves from being something that you like or don't like into the experience of sensing itself which is in many cases pretty neutral. The only time that I actually ever have the experience of seeing as being unpleasant is when it's too bright or, or too dark. Uh, but in a normal range of light, it seems pretty neutral. And in hearing sound, in the hearing of the sound, not in what you make out of it, uh, if the range of volume is in a in a in a in a, in a sort of normal level, it it seems pretty neutral in the hearing of it. The same could be said of temperature or any kind of texture. Is that making sense? Unworldly, neither displeasure or pleasure. When one's insight practice is p 
purified from the corruptions of insight, any of the six sense objects that arise will become very distinct and neither unpleasant or pleasant feelings become very distinct in the face of uh, uh, penetrating insight. So I've, I've basically just said that. When feeling an unworldly, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he understands, I feel an unworldly, neither painful or pleasant feeling. Um, so is that making sense? I'm really the main thing is about this, this the beginning of this understanding of worldly and unworldly uh, as a as a, a way of, of Buddhist thought around this. That um, uh, it's a, another way of reinforcing this idea of ultimate reality versus conceptual reality. In Buddhist thought, ultimate reality or the sensing experience and the quality of the sensing experience is reliable and conceptual reality is the thing we make the sensing experience into is unreliable. And so we want to begin to make this shift um, I like to talk about it in terms of moving from a place of this is what's happening because this is how I've interpreted the sensing experience into this is what I think is happening, what do you think is happening. If you can engage people at that level, um, there, there's very little self in that, really. It's an inquiry uh, and, it's, and an openness about what actually you're experiencing and an inquiry about what they're experiencing. And if you find people who are willing to tell you uh, authentically what they're experiencing, uh, this is the, the way into intimacy with them. Because in describing to you the way that they experience the present moment, they are revealing to you all of their conditioning, all of what's happened to them, all of the way that they've been formed, because that will be in the description of, of how they experience whatever the pattern is. And if you uh, let them in on how you authentically experience the, the present moment, then they have a window into seeing and understanding your conditioning. And this is, a, this, is this intimacy that, that's so meaningful, I think. You, you really get to know them and they get to know you. And in seeing um, the differences in perception of the experience of the present moment, it, it deepens your insight into an understanding of not-self, of impermanence and of uh, dukkha. Because they, uh, because um, in the possibility that somebody could experience so differently the, the conditions of the present moment, you see that there isn't one version of reality. There isn't one self. There isn't one intrinsic quality to it. That everything is, is based on your, uh, your capacity to sense and understand it. Um, if we talk about the development of spiritual maturity, then here we are again. The first thing is to understand that you have a mind state and they have a mind state, or they have a, 
a mind and or a, a body mind experience, uh, uh, and uh, they have one and that they're different, and that everyone has one and everyone's is different. The second is this aspect of touching into the thing that we've created out of the sensing experience into the sensing experience in a constant back and forth to evaluate whether we've made an, an accurate representation or not. The, the way that we are experiencing it is actually a, a, a close or a, a, a facsimile of what's happening. Have you ever uh, gotten something terribly wrong? Ever misunderstood what was happening badly? If you come at that from a place of this is what I think is going on or this is what my experience of this in the moment is, that's very different than saying this is what's happening and you have to comply with my view of it. Is that making sense? And so what we begin to notice is this next level where your mind state has an effect on the people that you're engaged with and their mind state has an effect on you. And if you're in an open uh, dialogue about this, then you can know how this affects uh, you. If somebody reacts to you with kindness, how, does that, how do you relate to that differently than if somebody reacts to you with anger? you notice that? How that's different? If somebody reacts to you with anger, most of us don't experience the content of what they're saying. We just begin to defend against being attacked. If somebody is reassuring that what they're saying isn't going to uh, lead to them abandoning you, you're more willing to hear what they're saying than if you're frightened in response to what they're saying that they'll leave you. We're very sensitive to these things. Um, as we continue to develop the spiritual maturity, we notice that there's a regulating effect that you can have. Your mind state can have an emotional regulating effect on someone else, and their mind state can have uh, a regulating effect on you, or a dysregulating effect. And that you have agency in how you operate, that you can have a regulating effect on your own mind state and a regulating effect on somebody else or a dysregulating effect. Is that making sense? That uh, the next level of this is to understand that you have an agenda and that they have an agenda and that they may not be the same agenda and so that you can begin to be open to understanding what your agenda is and you can be authentic in your expression of this so that you don't have to engage in manipulation. And you can also hopefully be engaging with someone else who is open about what their agenda is so that they don't have to engage in manipulating you to get what they want. And then the last one in this, this, this grouping of the, the basic skills of, of spiritual maturity is in understanding that some experiences have meaning and some don't. And um, can you explore in such a way that you identify what's meaningful to you? Um, and can you uh, um, notice that other people engage in exploration that, that may be meaningful to them. Um, if you learn to explore, is anybody else getting warm? 
if you learn to explore and are able to identify what's meaningful to you, then you can organize your life in such a way that you spend a, a majority of your time engaged in meaningful activity. But if you don't know what's meaningful to you, then you have no real way of organizing your life in such a way that the majority of your time is spent engaged in activities that are meaningful. And if you aren't engaged in activities that are meaningful to you, then your life can become despairing because you, you, you don't find value in the activities that you're engaged in. You don't find value in, in relationships that you're engaged in. And so we would be looking then at how do, how do you explore, how do you find the things that are meaningful to you. And, and in a true exploration, you'll be looking at things that are meaningful to you regardless of whether other people find them meaningful or not, or other people find them valuable or not. And you would be willing then to engage in those activities that have meaning because they resonate with you and it's your life. Uh, is that making sense? So we, this is this, this process. Um, we've come to the end of the section on and what would be the first and second foundations, which is the sensing experience itself and the, and the conversation around Vedan um, or feeling tones. And we'll begin uh, talking about mind next. So in mind, we typically talk about these uh, mind states, um, which are, in the traditional sense, eight pairs. Um, is the mind craving or is the mind not craving? Is the mind aversive or not aversive? Is the mind deluded or not deluded? Is the mind sleepy or is the mind agitated? Is the mind um, contracted or is the mind expansive? Is the mind concentrated or not concentrated? Is the mind uh, surpassable or unsurpassable? This refers to jhanic states. If you're in the fourth jhana, the mind is considered unsurpassable, but if you're not in the fourth jhana, it's considered surpassable. What's a jhana? A jhana is a highly concentrated state, <clears throat> which has five characteristics in the beginning. The first is that you place your attention on a, an object of meditation. The second is you sustain your attention on that object. Like the counting that we do? Uh, then PT arises. PT is a word that means uh, rapture or uh, energy, so that you notice the body is overtaken by energy. Um, uh, sukha is a word that means bliss, often translated as bliss. And then uh, ekagata means one-pointedness. So if all of those characteristics are present, you're in the first jhana. In this, the first jhana is unstable, which is why you have to constantly place your attention and sustain it. When you settle into the second jhana, it stabilizes. You no longer have to place or sustain your attention, so you have the, the, the rapture, the bliss, and the one-pointedness. Um, after a while in the second jhana, the energy becomes too coarse, and so the mind settles into a subtler, 
plane of just purely bliss and one-pointedness. Um, but after a while the bliss becomes too, too coarse and the mind settles again into a place of uh, equanimity and one-pointedness, which would be the fourth jhana. Yeah, it actually feels pretty good. Um, and then the last one is whether the mind is enlightened or not enlightened in terms of the mind states. I also like to talk about attachment mind states because uh, it's so useful in terms of developing uh, the capacity to explore and, and uh, begin to arrange relationships that are supportive. Um, one of the other things I like about talking about attachment um, is that it's a it's a picture. I was thinking of the metaphor. Um, is it easier to put together a jigsaw puzzle if you have the box top that shows you the picture of what you're looking to put together or if you don't have the box top? Um, if you had an idea of what you were looking for, then it would be easier to find. And so in the description of attachment uh, strategies, you have these elaborate descriptions of mind states that are easier to find than simply um, going after the, uh, the descriptions of the mind state that the, the, the traditional Buddhist literature talks about. In discovering these attachment mind states, you discover the method you need of exploring so that you can then begin to look for the, the mind states that are described in the traditional um, Buddhist literature, um, knowing what the process is of finding them. Is that making sense? So that in these uh, uh, detailed descriptions of, uh, of the way that the body-mind tends to be conditioned uh, through the attachment lens, you can see uh, more easily the nature of conditioning itself and so that when you move beyond the attachment descriptions into the subtler aspects of uh, the body-mind experience, it's easier to see them. Is that making sense? Also, as householders, it's useful to have relationships that are supportive of practice and uh, if you form uh, secure attachments with other people, it's a more reliable support system so that it makes it easier to go into some of the, the conditioning that may be more difficult to address. Also making sense? So. Um, tonight let's do a meditation. Um, I want to do a see-hear-feel meditation and we'll make a division between in and out in that, and then um, so any comments or questions about that? <coughs> I just think of it as worldly, 
pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or unworldly, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But you could do it either way. I don't really remember what the difference between worldly and unworldly is. Okay. I just stop at pleasant or okay. unpleasant. Can you remind me? Sure. Um, worldly is really sort of ordinary, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and unworldly is related to insights into various meditation states or into the, the nature of the three characteristics. So it's more advanced than I'm at, right? Um, well, uh, you may not have investigated it yet to know. Um, is the, the quality, and we weren't really doing a meditation that necessarily would have led to an unworldly experience. So for instance, if you were noting um, uh, arising and passing, then you would have maybe a, a higher chance of noticing an unworldly pleasant experience of being able to note that, or if you're noting no self, or you were noting some aspect of um, unsatisfaction, easier to discover than in this. Is that making sense? Yeah. Unworldly displeasure. But you might have noticed the frustration came up in the way that the meditation technique was going, that that would be unworldly displeasure, right? Or if there was a craving for a deeper insight coming from the practice, or a question about why do this practice, that sort of thing would be an unworldly displeasure. that um, I see in a lot more than I hear in, um, or at least it, it does feel like it's it's first. So mm -hmm. if, I, if I'm seeing in, I might have some like commentary about that, um, but it's like just I don't have a lot of hearing in much anymore, or whereas like seeing in uh, just have like a lot of flashes, and then those I'm those moments I'm not it's like an unconscious thing so it's like feeling into the sensation of it's quite difficult because by the time I realize it it's passed right so it may be that CN does proceed uh, herein because it's a more primitive mechanism um, the visual aspect of in terms of evolutionary biology preceded auditory or at least that's what they think So that might have been an unworldly, pleasant experience to that insight, if you noticed it. I see a lot of present time stamina, you know, trying to maintain present time awareness, laziness of the conscious mind, you know, it's just getting that stamina. So even, I didn't really note this time, it was just mm -hmm. extinguishing any sense of condition arising. So just getting that stamina where it's just like you can see the laziness, the drawback of your conditioning, mm -hmm. feeling states, or et cetera, et cetera. So it's just getting that uh, meditative stamina of I feel like to stay present mm -hmm. completely, you know, which is a matter of practice. 
and that might have led to an unworldly pleasant experience if you were able to get there. More of a stamina. <laughs> 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 I could know from that today. Mm. Thanks. It's a good one. <laughs> My body stopped hurting Did after it? a little while. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, that was cool. Concentration? Uh, it was like I was sort of experienced it as it was unpleasant. Is it if it, your body is hurting externally? Is it is it feel out? Yes. Right. So I was experiencing the my bodily pain as unpleasant, and then. Uh, I don't know what happened, but it just shifted into neutral. Okay. And then um, I started to feel the pain of pool, what do you call it? The pool, pool of pain. Poison and pain. What a poison and pain. In here, broken heart syndrome stuff. And um, and then I, is it a decision to experience it as neutral? Because it felt like it just a decision. Mm. Like I was, it felt like compressing and unpleasant. And then I, um, it felt like a choice to experience it as neutral. Mm -hmm. What's that about? Um, uh, that might actually be the next part mind, mm -hmm. not the actual feeling tone aspect. Fascinating. Because mind is easier to change than the feeling tone aspect. Fascinating. So mm -hmm. I have to go deeper. Mm. And then it's turning into something else that becomes pleasant. It's breaking up, sort of. Is that... Uh, and then it maybe transitions to... That's, that's the distinguishing factor. Is it pleasant or is it neutral? Because it's like the mind thinks that it's pleasant just because it doesn't hurt anymore. Right. But really, I'm not sure if it's actually pleasant. Um, well, it just depends whether it's the, the, the quality of feeling or is it the quality of the thing that you've made it into. Right. That's, that's the, the decision. Dude. Gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> I get stuck. <laughs> no. Anyone else? All right. If you're not on our email list and you would like to be, put your name on here and we'll add you to the email list. Anybody? I want to be on your email list, George. Also, you forgot to text me when you're in the So. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can. Um, this is deepening your practice, so I'm always talking about ways to deepen your practice. One of those ways is to go on retreat. I have some flyers out there for our next retreat, which is starting in December up in the Sierra Nevadas. We also have some intensive classes uh, coming up, which are starting in March. We're going to do a level one meaningful life, which is an informational class around um, meditation techniques and also um, around attachment theory. Um, and then um, we're also going to do, for the first time, a level two class. The level two class for <coughs> Meaningful Life will include in the class um, IPF, which is Idealized Parent Figure uh, Protocol, which is a guided meditation which is meant to shift attachment uh, toward more secure functioning through a meditation technique. It's really, uh, I think, quite an exciting thing. And it'll be at a group level, but you'll also be working with a meditation mentor in the class so that you could go more specifically into to, um, uh, your, your individual conditioning if you wanted to. We're also going to do um, uh, meditation interventions for the addiction process 
class, which is exploring using meditation as a way of um, addressing relapse. So those three classes will start in March. Um, <clears throat> I do one-on-one -on -one mentoring, so there's a flyer out there for that if that's interesting. So that would be an ongoing dialogue with uh, me as a meditation teacher. Some people find that that's useful. I find it useful. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, that's delight in case you, you missed it. Um, the, um, I also think that having a daily meditation practice is important. And so if, you, if you've had trouble uh, establishing a daily meditation practice, we do uh, morning meditation, which is a live conference call at 7.30 in the morning, Monday through s Saturday. So I have a flyer out there for that to give you a free month for that to see whether that's something useful to you. The classes here are offered on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. And um, so uh, the suggested Donna here is $20 per class. I have a bowl out there for cash and I can also take uh, credit cards or debit cards. Um, but you should give it a level that is really commiserate with your resources. If $20 doesn't mean that much to you, then give it a level that feels generous. If $20 is a good level, give it that level. If $20 is too much, give it a level that's uh, commiserate with your resources. But each time you come, do consider giving something because the practice of generosity is really uh, a, a practice for yourself uh, to open, open the heart. Um, I think that's good. If you've used a cushion or something, please put it back and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.